Hello, this is Deborah Anderson, the Black Woman Animator, coming back to you with another video. And this video is with my newest friend and veteran animator, uh, Dan Haskett. Thanks for coming, Dan. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Um, so my first question is, what was your childhood journey with art and animation? Oh, that's a very easy one to answer because uh, I started drawing when I was uh, three years old. And uh, I knew very, very early on that I wanted to be a cartoonist. So uh, animation was something that was a part of my life from the very, very beginning. And um, living, coming from uh, New York, as I did, uh, in the New York market, you had all of the uh, animation on, on TV that had ever been done up to that point. So I could see the whole history of the medium <laughs> at a glance. And by the time I was about 10 or 11, I knew I wanted to, to, get, to try it. I wanted to get into it. Either that or comic strips or you know something. But uh, I pretty much knew, I think, by the time I was... Uh, I say about 12, that I wanted to be an animator. So um, you, I know you mentioned before about all the different high schools that were uh, available to kids in New York City at the time. Can you go into a little bit about that? Yeah, uh, that New York had several public schools that were essentially trade schools. Uh, that had, they had names like Bronx High School of Science and uh, aviation and printing and so on. And um, my high school was the High School of Art and Design, which is happily still there. At least I think it's still there. And um, Art and Design specialized in commercial art. So uh, among other things, they, uh, they had classes in fashion illustration, and costume design and uh, architecture, uh, advertising, you know, um, you name it, uh, sculpture, so forth. And I was a cartooning and animation major. And that was kind of interesting because for one thing, you, you, I, I had a teacher who was uh, actually from advertising and he, he wasn't an animator at all. And I don't think he, he wasn't really a cartoonist either. He was an illustrator and a calligrapher, uh, among other things. But he, he was stuck with this room full of class clowns. And uh, <laughs> I have to say, I, I think he did pretty well, all things considered, in uh, keeping the lid on with this bunch of... Uh, students that uh, were, 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 you know, kind of flying off the handle a lot of the time. But what was good about it for me was that, that the fact that he wasn't a cartoonist was that he opened up our heads to uh, different things. You know, it, it wasn't just a, a straight line through with uh, cartooning. And uh, that was very, very helpful. So growing up, um, were your parents uh, supportive of your impending future career? Happily, yes. And uh, I'm very grateful to them for that because uh, they had every reason not to be. Uh, both of them were artists. My father was a musician and my mother and her mother uh, both drew but none of them were able to make a career from, out of their art. And uh, so, you know, they, they could have just said, no, you know, don't, don't do it, do something more practical or, you know, it'll break your heart or, or whatever, but they never did that. And uh, thank goodness, thank goodness. So Another grand question, how was it growing up in Harlem and how did that influence um, your love of art? Oh my, well, growing up in, uh, in New York City in general, 
with, okay, let me start with Harlem. Harlem was wonderful for me uh, because of music. You know, you, you could hear all kinds of music pouring out the windows, uh, you know, from people's radios and phonographs and all that, uh, which was terrific. And like the rest of Manhattan, uh, you could see all kinds of little dramas and comedies around you constantly. Um, I always say that as an animator, growing up in New York was uh, the right thing for me because you're constantly surrounded by people and how people behave. And you can store that away in your mind uh, or you can walk around and sketch it with your sketchbook and you know, whatever you, you, you want to preserve it. There's all this stuff going on that um, you can use later on when you're doing your, uh, your, your animated acting. Uh, it, was, it was really a godsend, I'd say, for me, uh, because it, I, I tend to store things away in my memory uh, anyhow, I mean, <laughs> um, an old colleague of mine once thought that I had a photographic memory. And I hadn't thought about that that way. I thought, no, I don't know about that, but maybe he was right. I don't know. Because uh, there was just so much going on that I absorbed. And uh, it was very helpful, very, very helpful in everything I've done since. So, uh, does that answer your question? So, okay. Yeah, it does. Okay. And so, as you were leaving New York City, is it true that you had the choice of moving to Los Angeles or to London with a certain someone? And what made you choose Los Angeles? Okay, well, the certain someone was Richard Williams. And fortunately for me and a lot of other people, uh, he decided to take on a job that was most unusual in that it was a feature length uh, animated cartoon that was going to be done in, uh, primarily in New York City. And uh, this was right on the heels of uh, Ralph Bakshi doing the same thing with uh, Fritz the Cat. So uh, it was most unusual. And uh, it was, <laughs> uh, the whole thing was being run by a couple of Broadway show producers who had never done a film in their lives. And so of course the first film that they do is gonna be a cartoon, <laughs> which has all of its own headaches and, and ups and downs and everything else and peculiarities that they had no idea about. And, uh, and uh, but fortunately for all of us, Richard Williams was called in to direct. And um, at the time he was trying to learn or relearn uh, the, what the old Hollywood animators, the golden agers uh, so-called had done. And so he managed to get a hold of as many of them as he could to work on this picture with him. Uh, at the time, he was trying to get his London studio up to speed in that kind of animating because up to, up to that point, they had done mostly, you know, very graphic stuff, um, you know, graphic design type of stuff, but not the really um, performance-oriented animation that the Hollywood people had been doing. So we had a staff of uh, veterans from... Disney, Warner, MGM, UPA, uh, Paramount, uh, Fleischer, and um, Terry Tunes. And it was wonderful. It was wonderful. It, it was, I think, the, the best experience that I've had on a film so far. And uh, for everybody concerned, it was a marvelous learning experience because we had a, a staff with an age range from about 18 to 86. And the 86 year old was Grim Natwick, 
uh, the guy who designed Betty Boop. So <laughs> you had quite a range of ability. You had people who had worked on uh, Snow White and Pinocchio and, and um, Tom and Jerry and uh, Bugs Bunny and uh, Mr. Magoo and everything else. So it was a wonderful, wonderful combination especially for a lot of hungry uh, kids who wanted to learn the, uh, the business. And as, as a result of that, um, Dick gave me a, a bit of a choice because I think he had spoken to the people at Disney. His, I think he had spoken to Frank Thomas and Eric Larson, mm -hmm. I think. He never said, he never outright said anything about it that I can recall. But he gave me uh, a chance to either go with him to London or to go to Disney, you know, to try out for it. And I was under the impression that I was just trying out like anybody else. But looking okay. back on it, I think he had uh, given them a heads up about me, which, uh, you know, very thankful about. And I remember uh, going out to Los Angeles with a group of people from uh, from the movie, which was, oh, I don't, I don't think I mentioned the name of it. It was Raggedy Ann and Andy. And Eric Goldberg uh, and I were uh, had gone out to Los Angeles with some other folks from the show to uh, try our luck. And I remember sitting on a bus bench in L.A. with Eric and, uh, as, and saying, I don't know really what I want to do. I'm not sure which way to go. And he said, Ah, uh, you know what you want to do. Go ahead. He was right. You know, I think I think everybody at that time wanted to find out what Disney was like, uh, except maybe for him at that time because he went off with Dick <laughs> to London. So. <laughs> so he went to London and I went to California. That's funny. Um, so, what do you love about hand drawn animation? Hmm. I love the warmth of it. I love the fact that you can do virtually anything that you can imagine with it. Uh, you're really not, you're not as tied down as you might be with other forms. Um, anything you can draw, you can animate. And so uh, you're not limited to what a puppet, whether it's a you know a, a real uh, three-dimensional puppet or a uh, uh, CG uh, puppet, you're not limited to what a rig is capable of. I remember um, talking to an animation historian. Uh, when The Incredibles was in production. And he was telling me that they had to create new software to try to replicate what you can do with drawings. And so that made me think, why, why are you, <laughs> why are you bothering? <laughs> why are you bothering? Just draw it, you know. But uh, I thought it was, it was a, a kind of a fascinating idea that they went to all this trouble to do what they did um, so that they could maintain the, uh, the 3D look. And, uh, you know, it worked. What can I say? It worked for them. But for me personally, I, I, I love to draw. So that's it. That's it for me. And you still do the like drawing to this day, right? Yeah. On paper. Right. Right. I think I may be one of the last people in the United States who <laughs> was doing it, but yes, I'm still doing it, and uh, I have no intention of giving it up because I I love it. I love it, and uh, I know I can do things with it that I couldn't do if I was working with with a rig. Right. So, there you go. Um, what are the different skills that you have to bring as a storyboard artist versus an animator? What are the skills 
that you have to bring when you're a storyboard artist? And then as an animator, what are the different skills that you have to bring to the table? Mm. The main difference, uh, I think, with storyboarding would be uh, composition, staging, because both of them are storytelling. But um, with storyboarding, of course, you're telling a story with all of the elements, uh, not so much with performance. You can you you indicate performance in a storyboard, but performance is the animator's property. You know. Um, with storyboard, it's mainly staging and timing. Um, today, storyboard artists are actually timing the pictures often, which um, I don't know. I feel like they should really be working with the director on that. But, uh, you know, I guess it depends on how a studio is set up. But uh, I think a story. I think today's storyboard artists are doing way too much. Um, telling a story is enough. <laughs> it that that's quite enough of uh, a thing to do. It, it, it it's quite enough of a um, uh, a complex activity. Uh, that you really don't need to be doing the the editing and the timing and so forth as well. Uh, it's 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 enough that you just tell the story well and uh, directly and simply and properly. That's enough to do. <laughs> That's a big deal. And uh, I'm very sorry to see so many storyboard artists have had so many other things piled on their shoulders because it's, it's, it's quite unfair. Uh, but for, yeah, for any, anyway, for me, there's the difference, the, the key difference. Storyboarding is telling the story uh, with composition and staging, indication of acting, while animation is acting, it's performance, so. So how, do, how can people, when you're animating, what are you thinking about in the process of, and, and as compared to what a, maybe a beginner or a novice would be thinking about? Hmm. I'm getting the impression that because of the changes over the last uh, 25, 30 years. I don't know if a lot of animators today are really thinking in terms of performance as much as we did because when, when my generation was coming up, we were trying to save uh, character animation, personality animation, because that had already gone, that, that, that looked like that was going extinct. You know, uh, when Hanna-Barbera uh, was the was the you know the prime example of, they were they were the kings of uh, animation in the 60s and 70s and uh, they were not doing full animation anymore they were doing you know TV that would have a whole bunch of different requirements and they they did not have they no longer had the time or the budgets to do full animation. So we were trying to rescue that because we loved it so much. And uh, that's another reason why working on Raggedy Ann was such an opportunity because we were trying to compete with Disney at that point. Uh, today, I'm just getting the impression that um, the TV way of doing things has taken over to a point where uh, it's difficult for somebody, at least in the United States, for somebody who actually wants to make a career as an animator, especially as a uh, traditional animator, uh, you know, doing hand-drawn, to be able to make a living. Um, and so people are concentrating more on just being able, doing whatever is necessary to be able to make a living rather than learning and um, 
developing and uh, refining an art form. And that's, that's very sad to me. I, I hope that more young people really start getting into the idea that uh, you can do so much more with this than you're doing. Uh, and it's so much more, I mean, from where I sit, it's so much more fun. <laughs> it's, just, it's just so much more fun doing it that way, you know? Um, what I love about, you know, answering your, your, your former question again, what I love so much about hand-drawn mm -hmm. work is that you can make an audience actually believe that this stack of drawings is a living thing. Right. And that's amazing to me, you know? And uh, why would you throw that away? You know? uh, that, that's way too much fun to throw away. <laughs> Uh, what is your commentary on, uh, you know, uh, newer animators maybe not using reference as much as, as they should? Oh, not using reference. I think they're, miss they're missing out on a lot. Um, now, when you say reference, are you talking about rotoscoping or? Uh, no, just like um, not not relying on what's whatever's in their brain and actually trying to look at things or research what they need to animate well ultimately you're going to have to rely on what's in your brain anyway uh you can you, you know often you you have to research things i remember as a character designer uh one of the biggest research jobs i ever had was for something for was for a, a movie that never that never happened uh where all the lead characters were fish and I had not, I was not used to drawing fish, so uh, I had to do a lot of research. And actually, that was a lot of fun because I found you know the enormous variation of uh, faces and forms in fish that would that really did make some great characters. So uh, in looking at that, I was like, my God, you know, like Mother Nature has given me a ton. Of, of uh, wonderful information here, you know, to to play with. So in looking what was what was already there, and then uh, you know, adapting it and uh, caricaturing it um, was quite an experience. So when it comes to um, you know, uh, I'd say you know, tackling any new uh, show, any new uh, uh, process or activity. Uh, research is a wonderful thing. It can help you terrifically, but you, 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 you're not just copy, you know, uh, you're not just looking at the research and, and, and essentially tracing it. Uh, you have to bring something to it. You have, you, you have to bring your knowledge of human beings to whatever kind of characters you're working with, you know, whether they are human or space aliens or animals or whatever, you have to bring your knowledge and your humanity to what you're doing so that other people will be able to, to uh, relate to it and respond to it. I saw some recent commentary on Twitter about um, character designs and the example that they used was, you know, if there was like a pigeon or a bird or a toucan, they would draw the male just this one way and then the uh, female character would have these faux boobs with high heels and and it was like what and then and then some other commentary was like as compared to nature, the guy of the species is usually the more pretty, the prettier, because right. they're trying to a attract the female. So they right. were commenting on their aggravation with, you know, character designers putting boobs and heels on on female animals. <laughs> or <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I, I gotta find that. You know, when this is over, I have to send I, it to you. You're giving me information because I gotta look that one up. That, that's funny. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. Um, we have to. 
<laughs> we have to try not to be lazy in, in what we do. Um, uh, one of the Disney nine old men, you know, that, that uh, elite group of animators from, from uh, the golden age, uh, Milt Call, mm -hmm. was for saying, I think quite a few times, he would remark on how lazy his co some of his co-workers were. <laughs> and uh, uh, being that he was considered one of the, you know, the demigods of the animators. Yeah, uh, his signature was definitely anti-lazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but he, he had an excellent point because for one thing, you, 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 you don't grow as an artist if you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And neither do you grow as a performer or as a communicator. Uh, when I was little, there was a comic strip in the, in the newspapers called Winnie Winkle. Uh, who, and I think Winnie Winkle was a young uh, career girl of the, the 1920s and 30s when the strip started out. And who, uh, the guy who was drawing the strip at that time uh, in, the, in, the, in the 60s was cracking me up because he only had one, he only knew one way to draw a woman. And so he, every woman, except for maybe the older women, all looked exactly alike except for the hairdo. You know? <laughs> and this was very, very common uh, with a lot of cartoonists and animators that they had one way of doing something that would get them through the job. And so often they saw no need for doing anything else. And so this is why you have the toucan with boots and, and you know, long eyelashes or, you know, high heels or whatever, <laughs> because um, it would have been a lot more fun thinking about it. It would have been a lot more fun to do, the, you know, the male toucan uh, uh, from nature. And they're like, okay, well, what, what, does, what would that look like? What does a more uh, flamboyant, male character look like you know and I, you know, i'm glad you mentioned it because like you know yeah you know we don't do that too often you know? <laughs> so it's, it's you know it's, it's something new to think about and uh, that's what uh keeps you going yeah and we've talked about before um about how sometimes i've seen maybe on instagram or somewhere where a guy a male artist will continually do these like muscular buff characters and my theory is because they don't know how to draw women <laughs> like the the softness and the whatever of women and so they just keep drawing buff dudes all the time yeah i had a job doing storyboard one time on the spectacular spider-man and the reason that i got that job was that the board artist that um, uh, two of the directors had only wanted to draw fights. Okay, uh, so they had so they were stuck. Now they had these teenage characters who were having these teenage problems, you know, with with dating and with trying to hold down a job and uh, trying to get through school and all this stuff but they didn't have any board artists who wanted to draw that stuff. They didn't want, <laughs> they didn't want to do the performance stuff. They just wanted to do, you know, the knockdown drag out fights. So uh, it was helpful for me that I loved acting because I was able to keep working. <laughs> uh, so, you know, from, from a purely practical standpoint, uh, it's a very good idea to learn how to do the other stuff. But uh, yeah, you're right. Um, a lot of guys just like drawing, you know, the buff characters. They like drawing the, the, the muscular superheroes and all that. And that's really, they're not really interested in drawing a lot of other things. 
And I remember that even as a kid, I remember that generation, which I guess they call them now, I think the silver ages, you know, there's always an age, for something. there's a bronze age and a silver age and all that. But uh, what used to crack me up in looking at comics as a kid was how many silver ages had a whole lot of trouble drawing uh, animals and children and uh, elderly people. And it was, oh man, you, you would get some very interesting things, especially if they, oh my God, especially if they had to draw babies. Oh my God, you would get some fascinating things. <laughs> you would get some fascinating looking creatures. Creatures, things. You know, because all, all they wanted to do, you know, they, they knew how to, how to draw the tough guys, you know, the rock jaw guys. And anything else was a little out of their kin, you know, and it was obvious. <laughs> Very obvious. Oh man, and so you had a, you know, so you had a, uh, that grew up, that had grown up on that stuff and didn't see any reason to be any different. Mm -hmm. You know, so you just started seeing a, would run across their path or whatever, man, you know, you, you see some stuff. <laughs> it's like, what's that? I, oh, that's, oh, I saw something just the other day. I saw uh, an old uh, magazine cartoon of something that was supposed to be a pig. Supposed to but, be. But, yeah, uh, whoever drew it, I think, only knew how to do a dog, how to draw a dog. And so he, he had this you know, a combination that looked like something from the island of Dr. Moreau, you know, that, that uh, mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was a pog or. <laughs> what are those, what are those compliments that you give, uh, you know, when you're, when you look at a baby and, and you don't want to comment on how it looks like, oh, <laughs> look at, look at that baby looking like itself. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, that sure is a baby there. Yeah, you got there, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the so so long story, very long story short. Yeah, the more you can pick up, the more learning that you you know, the, the more you can take in. Please take it in. Uh, <laughs> go to the zoo and learn how to draw animals. You know, uh, go to the ballet. And learn how to draw ballerinas, uh, you know, and all you know, learn how to draw other kinds of men as well. You know, learn how to draw old men, learn how to draw fat men, learn how to draw all shapes and sizes. You know, right. Um, er earlier when we were talking about New York, I forgot to bring up. Um, there was a guy, uh, T. Collins, that you uh, knew uh, who had a studio in New York. I, yeah. I wanted to uh, ask you about um, the impact on seeing a black man own a studio when you were young, um, coming up in the industry. It was terrific because I don't know if at that time um, I didn't, uh, I wasn't aware of any uh, of anybody else who owned the studio. Uh, as it turned out, I think that uh, Leo Sullivan and Floyd Norman uh, also had a studio in Hollywood, but then that's just two studios <laughs> in, in the whole country, you know. Right. <laughs> as, far as, as far as I knew. Uh, but it was just wonderful to meet T and to work with him and to hear his stories. Um, uh, being in the business because it was very unusual. It's still unusual, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. But um, it it made for a unique experience uh, because this, this was somebody who understood what I was about, you know, and I understood what he was about. And uh, the shorthand, it, no code switching. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, and and it was a, it was at a time when change was trying to happen, like today. Uh, 
it was, you know, it, the, the civil rights movement was still going strong. Mm -hmm. And so this was uh, uh, a wonderful opportunity and experience to work with somebody who, uh, who got it, you know, who understood. And T had done, uh, I think he had been in the business since the 50s. And uh, he had done, you know, in doing commercials because that, the commercials were the main thing in New York. Uh, I don't recall his background too much. I know that he had done work for studios. I think it was uh, Electra or Academy, who were uh, they were big studios in the fifties and sixties. And so to find out that there was a, a black designer. Yeah. at the studios was was an amazing thing. Um, uh, George Olden, who it's, it's, it's debatable uh, now what he did, uh, but he was a right hand, George Olden was a black uh, graphic designer who was a right hand man to uh, a fellow named William Golden, who put CBS, uh, TV graphics on the map, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, CBS was known for its uh, great graphics uh, in the 1950s and 60s. And uh, George Olden was right there. And he is credited with designing the CBSI. So, and I found that out, so, oh my God. I mean, it, it's, it's still, people are still debating, you know, who gets the credit for that design, but, you know, it's still with us to this day. And uh, it was just amazing and incredible that I think any black person was able to get uh, a foot, that, that much of a foot in the door at that time. Um, so you mentioned um, the nine old men earlier, and you uh, had an opportunity to work with some of them. You didn't, and I know you started your career before, you know, working on I think Brim Coffee and a lot of and Raggedy Ann and Andy and all that stuff. But how has the um, animation landscape changed since you started? Because there were more tra trainees back then, when, and that was more common when you started. I'm not sure if that's very common now, but how is the animation landscape, how things work, whether it's through like the workers or the administration, how, is, how have things changed throughout the decades? Okay, things have changed considerably. Uh, as far as Disney itself is concerned, um, at, that at the time I, I first started there, uh, they were in trouble actually because uh, it wasn't sure that the, the Disney brass, the you know the, the uh, executives, were not sure if they were going to keep doing animation, uh, which sounds incredible now, but uh, that was the situation. And uh, so, in doing uh, the Fox and the Hound, they had to get a whole bunch of neophytes up to speed very, very quickly because the bulk of their staff had left uh, long ago for television and, um, you know, in, in all departments. And so they were working with basically a skeleton crew and uh, the skeleton crew was starting to uh, diminish as well, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston were going to be leaving. They were, they were going to be retiring uh, and writing their first book. Uh, Milt Call had retired already. Um, John Lounsbury had, had passed on. And others had, uh, Mark Davis and Les Clark had gone on to uh, Disneyland and to live action uh, projects. So, Eric Larson was left with having to take all these green kids and try to whip them into shape in record time so that they could finish this movie. And uh, that was a heck of a situation. And since then, training new animators 
uh, morphed away from learning on the job to learning in college. And uh, when Chenard became CalArts, uh, it became the training ground for uh, new Disney people, okay? But uh, since then, uh, that's, been, that's become the norm that the business has, is depending on the colleges to train, to, to do their training for them. And uh, this has its ups and downs because uh, the advantage to learning on the job, obviously, is that you learn much faster. You learn more and you learn more faster. And uh, you also have the advantage of hearing all of the war stories of the, uh, the veterans that can help you so much that, that those are invaluable to a kid because um, that's the way you learn about how to survive in the business. You can't learn that in college unless you, know, you have many, many people coming in uh, as guests telling you these things. And often in a school atmosphere, you're, you know, you know, in a school atmosphere, you're removed from the day-to-day -day of a business. So you still have the opportunity, if you want to, to not pay attention to what a guest speaker is telling you. <laughs> you know, you still have the, you can still sit back and say, oh, well, that's not going to happen to me, you know. Uh, whereas if you were on the job, you'd have to really think seriously about what you're doing. So, uh, yeah, that, that's one of the major, major changes in the business. And also over the last uh, about 50, 50 years now, the outsourcing of the actual animation has really played havoc with what's left uh, because um, Disney put it, Walt Disney was quite right, I think, in the, with the idea that everybody should have at least a working knowledge of animating in order to work in the, in the field because what you learn translates into every other discipline on a, a movie. If you know your working knowledge of animation, character design got you know uh, God, character design took a really big hit when it wasn't being done by people who knew anything about animating. Um, so does storyboarding. Uh, so does layout. Everything took a hit when the animation went overseas and uh, hasn't completely recovered, you know. Um, character design, and I, you know, I can speak on that because uh, that's what I've been doing for the last 30 odd years. Uh, it took a major hit. Uh, people just didn't understand uh, what made a design truly workable, especially on a TV schedule which is, you know, very, very fast, right? And uh, I remember when I was working on uh, the first uh, version of Batman, you know, the animated series, that the, um, the design that um, they came up with was, you know, it lo looked great as stills, but I couldn't help thinking like an animator and saying, you know, I can see that these folks are really going to have trouble moving this stuff because it was very boxy. And uh, it's, it's, of course, it's easier to turn a ball than a box. So I was, I, when, when the film started to come back, I thought well, I, I could see it. I could see, you could see the you know, people struggling with turning those things. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was something to see. I mean, eventually, or, you know, over time, they were able to do it. But 
had they chosen a different design route to begin with, it could have been done much sooner. It could have been done much easier. And you could have had something that I, in my opinion, would have been just as attractive and just as appealing. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> we've had a lot of changes. I mean, and, and the, the, the technological changes also. Um, mm -hmm. They still have the, the potential to be marvelous. You know, they, they still have the potential to bring uh, actual animating back to this country or any other country. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, I don't think it's any longer a thing of having to, to uh, ship stuff out to get it done cheaper. Yeah, you uh, told a story, a story about, um, a secret story <laughs> about uh, some people who had to animate and not send it and not outsource it and it was quicker. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, a major studio here in the States was doing a TV series that uh, the usual way of outsourcing the animation, but for some reason they had to do an episode in-house and uh, they did it. And not only did they do it, they did it on time and they did it under budget. And the executives told them to hush that up. So I don't know what's going on, but <laughs> obviously you can still, you can do it here mm -hmm. now again. So I don't know what's going on and I'm not going to presume anything. All right. All I know is from that story, you're able to do it if you want to do it. Mm -hmm. So there you go. So if and everyone watching, yeah. yeah, if everyone watching hasn't Googled or IMDB Dan by now, I'm going to go through a lot of the stuff that you've worked on, but then I'm going to deep dive into some particulars. But um, okay. you worked on Sesame Street. And uh, as a storyboard artist and as an animator, you worked on various projects such as Garfield and Friends, The Smurfs, Rocco's Modern Life, Johnny Bravo. You did one episode of The Proud Family, um, Class of 3000, Raggedy Ann and Andy, as you've already mentioned, um, Alvin and the Chipmunks. You designed Ariel for Little Mermaid, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, you did Belle, Fern Gully, The Last Rainforest. Um, I like that movie. Animaniacs. I like all this stuff, actually. <laughs> the Page Master, <laughs> uh, Toy Story, The Prince of Egypt, um, Happily Ever After, Fairy Tales for, Fairy Tales for Every Child, Johnny Bravo. Um, and uh, you worked on the Jetsons and the question I have for you with the Jetsons is, you know, I don't like, I don't like remakes, but what is your theory on why nobody <laughs> has mentioned the Jetsons in the past decades of remakes? My theory is that they're not creative enough to think into the future of what we're supposed to have. I mean, they could, sometimes they could use the same things because we don't have <laughs> flying cars, but I feel like maybe people, the writers aren't creative enough to think of what the future should look like. That could be a big problem. Oh, I have to say one thing. I did not work on Rocco's Modern Life. That's that's okay. the only thing. That's the only thing on the list I didn't work on. All right. But, but with the Jetsons, uh, it could be that uh, that people are, are yeah are having trouble trying to figure out how to you know project things into the future from here on in because so many things that the Jetsons predicted, you know, we have in one form or another. Mm -hmm. And. Uh, when I was working on, uh, <laughs> I worked very briefly on the, the, the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my, one of the producers on that was a friend of mine who was telling me that he felt that the, what made the, the TV show popular were, were the gadgets, you know, the futuristic yeah. gadgets. And I was thinking, yeah, that's true to a point but it was also the effect that, that they had on the characters. Like if, if, you were going, if you were going to reboot the Jetsons now, you would have to you know, not only project yourself into the future and, and uh, find out what people would be, you know, imagine what people would be doing 
100 years or whatever hence. But what effect that would have on the people. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing about the original Justice is that the characters were based on the the comic strip uh, Blondie. You know, it's like the Flintstones have been based on uh, the Honeymooners TV show. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, Blondie didn't have as much power uh, as as the Honeymooners (laughs) had. And so the characters were a little weaker, you know, with the Jetsons. Now I think you'd have to give them a good boost as well. I mean, you, you, you know, you could probably keep them keep the same basic personalities, but you have to I think maybe do something with them yeah. to uh, make them more interesting over a long haul. You know, um, there was an episode in the the first reboot. Uh, of the Jetsons that was a lot of fun looking back on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, George runs across a guy who has a portable time machine. And uh, somehow you know, George gets a hold of it and starts playing with it. And in doing so, he almost loses Jane mm-hmm. because he, he, he changes the past. And he, he, he begins losing Jane to another guy. And I thought, that is a wonderful idea. You know, it, it's, it's, it's the kind, it, it, it showed what was possible right. with a reboot of the show and actually working the characters into the, uh, the fabulous technology. Yeah, the gadgets as well as the human aspect. I feel like right. in 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 2020 and in, in the in the 21st century, there's there's such as concentration on technology and you know um, updates to technology, but there's no updates to humans and us getting better as people. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I don't know, maybe that doesn't make for good drama. I don't know. <laughs> But, but, but no, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah. Um, well, here, here's an opportunity. Here, here is the perfect time mm-hmm. to do exactly that. Here's a time to use animation to help people to see things differently, you know, to help people to think differently, uh, to finally. Uh, at least do some uh, damage to uh, the last four or 500 years uh, <laughs> of what people have gone through in this country. Mm-hmm. We have an opportunity to uh, do something about that now and how we educate uh, children, especially, but also in how we get adults to see uh, how they can learn new uh, behaviors, new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing, um, and new ways of imagining for that matter. Um, This is an excellent time. This is a great opportunity to um, use animation. And I mean, animation has always been great as uh, an educational tool. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is a wonderful, time and a very apt time to use something that has the entertainment quality of animation and has the ability has the ability to bypass the intellect the way animation does so that uh, you can reach people at a gut level yeah um Oh, and through my research, I found that we actually worked on the same movie, Scooby-Doo, Legend of the Phantasaur. You were a character designer, and I uh, did the background when I lived in Korea. I did the backgrounds. uh, I don't know, for that one, Mm -hmm. I might have done like a dinosaur under a sheet. That's on my demo reel from back then. But... uh, (laughs) And we yeah. might have worked on other things. It's just after I left Korea, I kind of stopped tracking what what Scooby Doo movies I worked on. And I saw you had a lot on your IMDb, but um, I uh, 
I told you before about how I vibed with Floyd Norman on our disdain for Scooby-Doo because um, there was a background that I was doing for one episode <laughs> and it was like a rock formation in a in a quarry or, or something like that and they tried it in 2D and then they brought it to 3D and I just couldn't figure out what my director wanted and so he was kind of pissing me off <laughs> and so like um when they would upset me you know the the building was formed in a square where the windows were on the outside and you could walk around the outside and the, all the offices were in the inside. So I would just go to another floor and walk around and then come back to my desk. But the, with Scooby-Doo, he like upset me so much that I went and walked outside around a Korean block, which is similar to a New York City block right. <laughs> to cool down. Cause I'm just like, I really don't know what you want from me and I can't speak Korean to try to figure this out. <laughs> Like, we had done very well with me not being fluent with Korean up until then, but I'm just like, I have no clue what you want. So they had to give it back to 2D, but I was like, and I, I don't remember what Floyd Norman's hangup was, but when I saw him at Essence Festival and after his uh, documentary, I had him draw Scooby-Doo, and I, has, I still have the picture somewhere, but I was like, kindred spirits, <laughs> we don't like Scooby-Doo, <laughs> at least working on it. <laughs> Oh my! I, I don't. I don't think anybody who worked on the creation of that series had had any idea would still be here, fifty years later. Yeah. And uh, you know, I've worked on it for the last ten years. Mm -hmm. I do not understand its popularity. I probably never will. Look. <laughs> <laughs> But, but the one good thing I will say about it, aside from that it's kept me eating recently, yeah. is that every so often, as, I would, as a character designer, I would get something to do that was unusual and that uh, kept my uh, brain active. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, I would say, you know, that, that, that was at least one thing that I could enjoy uh, in working on the show. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's, it's so, it's so ironic that, that I ended up on it because like, see, I, I, oh golly, I was, I was a teenager when that show came out. In fact, I, that was the, it came out the year I started in the business. And, uh, when you were 17. Thought, yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I thought, well, uh, that's it for Hanna Barbera. <laughs> and so here we are, fifty years down the road. <laughs> I will admit that uh, I made a, a Facebook post recently, and I put "rut row" <laughs> as my caption. Uh huh. Yeah, that that's become very popular now. <laughs> yeah. But I have to say, maybe another good thing about it, perhaps, is that it gives you some idea what an amazing effect animation has on people. Because mm -hmm. like I said, I cannot understand. I, it escapes me completely what people see in that, in that uh, show. But doggone it, you know, they, oh, doggone it, listen to me. Uh, but here we are, you know, they, they, they love that dog. They I just, saw a, just, a hilarious article yesterday, and it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I saw a hilarious <laughs> article yesterday that said, um, "You you didn't you don't really like Disney. You just haven't been happy since you were 11 years old." <laughs> <laughs> well, that's evil. <laughs> and so Disney takes you back to a safe place, I guess. <laughs> oh, that is that is that is beautifully evil. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, that that's quite true. I mean, I think for for a great many people, that was mm -hmm. their childhood, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, that's all there is to it. And uh, it, it it it's kind of too bad. I mean, uh, I I was I was born three years before they opened uh, Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And so I was not part of that generation. You know, I, I was in New York. I never was able. I, you know, my my parents 
could not afford to travel cross country. Mm -hmm. So I never got to be part of that group that was, um, you know, Disneyland crazy. And I'm very glad. You know, I am very, very glad. Uh, I started meet when I, when I first came out to Hollywood, I started meeting people who went there regularly when they were kids. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in listening to them, I realized I was listening to people's imaginations shrinking. Mm. Uh, and what do you mean by that? Because Disney's power in the children's market is so strong that people have forgotten other things. Um, when I, I, I was giving a, uh, I, I was doing a, a, a class at uh, NYU and uh, I came across a student who had, uh, who had just read The Little Mermaid, who had just read Hans Christian Andersen's original Little Mermaid for the first time. And all she had known was the movie. And she was horrified. <laughs> uh, people are not reading the original versions of fairy tales, to my knowledge. They, you know, most people only know the Disney version. Uh, there's a lot of children's literature that. Um, has been forgotten. Um, there's an outlook on storytelling that's been forgotten. There are several outlooks on storytelling that, that, are, that are being forgotten. Um, because movies in general, not, not just Disney, are, you know, have been heading in a small handful of directions. And I'm hoping that now with streaming, I'm hoping that there's, there'll be a little bit more, I'm hoping there'll be a lot more of uh, some kind of expansion in storytelling. Uh, because yeah, people are used, have become used to one thing or a very small group of things. And um, it's, it's really done a number on uh, little kids, I think. You know, I can't say for sure, I'm, I'm, I'm not a parent, but it's what I've noticed is that when you deviate from that kind of thing, and, and, and getting back to Disney, what I, I have to say, with the cartoons, there were, they did make efforts to go in, in new directions. But I think what happened was the parents or the fan base or whatever didn't want it. You know, they did try things like Hunchback and Atlantis and so forth, but they didn't go over with, uh, the, you know, to my, to my understanding, they didn't go over with the fan base. So, uh, you know, here we are. So, um, so I, I sent you an image of this, uh, this artist that did a 2D um, character design or transformation or whatever of uh, John Boyega from Star Wars and many other films. Mm -hmm. And I won't put it up because yeah. I don't want to call anybody out, but um, a lot of times when I see character designs for black characters, I can usually tell um, when a white artist did it versus a black artist. And what is it about some white artists that when they draw black characters, they don't capture it collect correctly and they take our Africanness or our, our blackness out of it sometimes? They're not really seeing us. They're not really looking at us. Um, that could be a, a double meaning. 
Well, I, okay. I once gave a talk at a uh, an animators conference where this came up. I was showing um, the work I had, some of the work that I that I had done with black characters and with Asian characters, and the um, the impression that I got was that people just were not. I'll say, you know, white people were not really used to actually seeing what we actually look like. Okay. Um, it's a thing where, again, when it comes to cartoonists, they don't study, they don't research, they don't really look. They do what's convenient what's comfortable, what they, what, whatever they, what they already have in their minds. And where black people, you know, where people of color are concerned, unfortunately, that can be stereotypes. And um, again, it's just a thing of really, really observing and uh, drawing what, uh, is, is actually there rather than just what you perceive, you know? But uh, that, that's basically it. I mean, it's, it's, and it's, it's something that is, you know, it, it's been rampant. It's been rampant in cartooning forever. Um, you know, like I said before, you'll do things that'll get you, get you through the job. And uh, also in some cases, it's uh, a thing where people will draw what makes them comfortable, not what is actually there. <laughs> because sometimes what's there makes them uncomfortable. <laughs> they don't want to deal with it. And uh, if people want to get in touch with you, how could they do that? I'm on Facebook. And uh, they can reach me through uh, uh, on email through uh, dakahask at uh, gmail.com. And that's D A K A H A S K at gmail.com. So, again, I would like to thank my new friend for coming to bless us on the Black Woman Animator YouTube channel. And for all of those out there, I would like you to like so I know it's real, comment and tell me how you feel, subscribe to seal the deal, and sign up for post notifications to show your zeal. And we'll see you in the next video. Peace. Great. Take care.